I'm still drinking the celery juice because I just trusted it. I just trusted the program and I trusted you and I trusted the science behind it because I read and I read and I read and I read and I read over and over again to absorb it so it would become almost like second nature rather than going, why am I eating this steamed sweet potato again? I would have that science. And I'm not a sciencey person, but I would have the science to go, it's because of this. It's because your stress has led you to having a leaky gut and now your body is inflaming because of it. And that kept me going. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. Welcome back to rheumatoidsolutions.com. And we have a guest today who's going to share her improvements with her rheumatoid arthritis. And we're going to talk about spirituality. We're going to talk about uh, the impact of stress and and emotional uh, you know, trauma with regards to the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. We're going to talk about lifestyle changes, the Patterson program, and how she's been able to implement this and get tremendous results from this. Uh, and yes, it's going to be very interesting. So welcome, Carrie, from Wales. Thank you very much. Hi there. Let's, let's uh, hook everyone into uh, you know, what you've been able to achieve. Uh, tell us a quick before and after before we get into your story. Okay, so before, progressively, the pain, the inflammation was absolutely everywhere. So and initially, my, my shoulders, that spread into my wrists, that spread into my fingers, my hips, my cheekbone, my jaw, my knees, my ankles, my toes, everywhere. So debilitating to the point of not being able to walk properly, um, couldn't do pretty much anything for myself, couldn't get out of bed had to be pulled out of bed, had to be carried down the stairs, um, had to be put in the shower. I mean, it would, the pain was absolutely everywhere. The inflammation was everywhere. Lying down was impos- almost impossible because of the pain. Um, sleep were, evaded me completely. And I was constantly in pain. And I would cry a lot because the pain was overwhelming. It was, there was no respite from it at all. Now, two years on, everything is working very well. I'm walking, I'm running again. Um, I'm a very keen runner and I can stretch. There's a few sort of things my body doesn't do as well as it did, but it's, I'm, I'm probably healthier certainly now than I was before, even though I was super healthy back then. So that's, that's the kind of black and white of it really, the before and after. It's extraordinary. Um, I mean, that level of transformation is captivating to hear about. So, you know, I hope everyone's as excited as I am to hear your story for the first time. And let's let's talk about the onset. You know, I only have a few snippets of information to go with. So, you know, I'm really curious to, to find out about how this started. Okay. So January 2019, and I woke up with a really searing, what I can describe as a searing pain across one of my shoulders. So it felt, it felt like a bit of a running injury. It was like, oh, this, this feels a bit tender. And then that pain spread across my chest bone or across my clavicle. And it was very, very painful. And I rang, there's a number in the UK you can ring, just like a, a hotline, if you like, rather than going to hospital. So I rang this hotline and they were sort of saying, this sounds like a heart complaint. So I was taken into the emergency room put on all monitors and I was fine. And eventually I was seen by whoever the consultant would have been on, on shift that evening. And he said, no, you've got a rotator, a rotator cuff injury in right. your, in- so mm-hmm. I go, okay, rotator cuff and rang my physio. Cause I have regular physio cause of my running. And she came and she treated me and all was fine for about two weeks. And then I woke up again in the morning and the pain was in my hands. That was the foot. And it was so, so painful. So my hands, sure other people might have experienced this, sort of turned into claws. 
Um, then that pain spread throughout. It went across my shoulders. This was over a matter of days. Over, uh, across my shoulders, um, down into my knees, into my feet, my ankles. And it was just like this rapid flow of, of inflammation and pain. And I was working away, so I'm still having to hobble around <laughs> ridiculously. And then when I got back home, I saw an emergency doctor and they immediately asked, is there any family history of rheumatoid arthritis? And, you know, no. <laughs> um, and sort of hobbled away. And she said, well, I'm, you're going to have to see your own doctor and then, you know, we can refer you. So in that, in the time that I was waiting to see the sort of what we have, the family doctor here, the pain got progressively worse. That's when it went into my, my jaw and my cheeks to the point I couldn't turn my head. I'm still driving at this point and I couldn't turn my head to look behind me. I mean, it was just awful. I saw our family doctor who immediately recognized the symptoms and said, I think this is rheumatoid arthritis and sort of gave me some painkillers and, and off I went and I was referred then to rheumatology. In this period, the pain got worse. I mean, I didn't think it could get worse, but it did get worse. And everywhere hurt. That's the best way I can describe it. It was, I felt like I was shrinking. My life was shrinking. I was shrinking. And my neighbor gave me a stick. So I was this 46-year-old woman walking with a stick. And a pain beyond description. I mean, you know, women have got quite a high pain threshold. I thought I had, but this was like nothing else. So I got to, I eventually got seen by, by the rheumatologist who immediately got me to do some tests. So things like taking my jacket off, trying to um, flex my hands, got me to walk. So all the kind of motor, motor skills that we take, so, so take for granted, just couldn't do. And then he diagnosed me there and then. And instead of being relieved, I was devastated. There was, you know, so many things that I, you know, unfortunately, they always say in, in the medical world, don't Google your symptoms, you know, go, go to the professionals. But of course I did and I had, and I was convinced it was rheumatoid arthritis, but I knew nothing of it. I thought, and the prognosis wasn't good. You know, it, it just looked like this was my fate and I was just going to have to live with it for the rest of my life in the state that I was. The rheumatologist was very positive. He just said, you know, um, people can live with this really well and medication is very good. But that was it. You know, I had a steroid injection, which was excruciating for all sorts of reasons and had no effect on me whatsoever. Really? Didn't help at all. If anything, it made the pain worse. So in, in clinic on that day, I had lots of other tests. And this brilliant family doctor had referred me to other clinics for an orthopedic clinic, um, a hand clinic, a foot clinic. I mean, she was really thorough. But those tests were yet to come. Um, that was kind of six, seven, eight weeks down the line. Was so I'm there. Sorry, Karen, was that for imaging so that you could get some sort of current state x-rays for comparison in the future? Or was that for therapy, you know, hand therapy, foot therapy? You know, orthopedics. Yeah. Yeah. It was for hand therapy and foot therapy with a mm. view, I suppose. Cause I initially thought it was um, oh gosh, what's it called? Um God, it's gone completely out of my head. Um oh, carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel, yeah. Because yeah. I was wearing splints, you know, that's how mm. bad it was. Um, and I thought it was carpal tunnel. So I was referred to orthopedics, um, thinking it was carpal tunnel and the surgeon was ready, you know, to do the op there and then but that's that comes later so carpal tunnel it was carpal tunnel in the end but that disappeared so then what happened is I found the Patterson program is what happened next and that was a revelation because it for me there was so much out there there's so much out there about reducing inflammation I was buying books I was going to the library I was researching about what exercises to do. I could barely walk, let alone exercise. And so the more I read about what Patterson Program is, is have, you've, you've gone into so much depth on it, that appealed to me because I thought I want to get to the root of this. I really want to understand what is happening in my body and to really take responsibility for my wellness and 
I was, if I'm honest, I would have done anything. The pain was that bad. And I was so debilitated. If you'd said to me, you have to eat, you know, um, apples for the rest of your life, then I'd have done that. You know, I was just so driven because I was in so much pain and it was changing my identity. I became, it was, it was, I would be walking around, not walking around, I'd be hobbling around from just up the street and people stopping me going, you know, what's happened to you? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Mm. So when I looked into the Patterson program, I read, you know, you, you, the program is very thorough and detailed and encouraging. And that's when the changes started to happen. So, you know, I'm on medication by this point. I've come off painkillers, but the medication takes time, right? So for me, the pan- so initially I was put on sulfazolazine and mm-hmm. methotrexate. And I was on 25 milligrams of methotrexate and about 5,000, I think it was 5,000 of sulfazolazine. Did you and start I- immediately on 25 milligram? Did they put yes. you immediately? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, some rheumatologists like to start low and then work their way up. I'm curious to hear that you were straight on to 25. Yeah. Pretty aggressive. Okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I was taking it, you know, with with just the hope it was going to give me some relief. But it took a long time. Mm-hmm. It took a very long time. So anyway, I started employing the strategies of Patterson programs. So the first thing to go, which I which I I, I stick to now, was coffee. Um, quote unquote, coffee should be outlawed. And so that came out of my diet. And that was the most difficult thing. That first 10 days, that was the most difficult thing. So I was so attached to my coffee. I loved it. And then very, and I thought the thing is, the, the, this, the change in diet wasn't that difficult for me because I had been vegetarian almost all my life. Just taking the dairy out wasn't a big struggle, but it was eating foods that were very different, I suppose. Um, some of the diet, some of the, the foodstuffs were just a little bit different to my palate. But like I said, I would have eaten anything just to, you know, feel well. Just, just, um, to, uh, to, just to relate to you on that, let me tell you how different it was for me too. I mean, these foods that are in the baseline period, these things I'd barely, in fact, I don't think I'd heard of them before I started to, uh, yeah. to eat them. Um, and uh, they came about originally through uh, a book by Dr. Hiromi Shinyo, a gastroenterologist. That's when I started to learn about these foods. So, yeah, they, um, you know, they're not your, they, they're much more common now um, than what they were, you know, 12 years ago when I started eating these things. But yeah, I completely agree. We're not used to eating those foods. We're used oh. to eating the conventional Western diet. So it is a change. But it needs to be, doesn't it? We need to do something radically different, doing something slightly different, like going gluten-free or just eliminating processed foods. You're only going to get a slight improvement. We got to do something radical against a radical disease. Um, it needs the intervention needs to match the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was my driver. That was really my drive on the baseline foods. That those first ten days. Mm. Um, and celery juice, you know, that was, I'm still drinking the celery juice because I just trusted it. I just trusted the program and I trusted you and I trusted the science behind it because I read and I read and I read and I read and I read over and over again to absorb it. So it would become almost like second nature rather than going, why am I eating this steamed sweet potato again? I would have that science, and I'm not a sciencey person, but I would have the science to go. It's because of this. It's because you've, your stress has led you to having a leaky gut, and now your body is inflaming because of it. And that kept me going, even though I was kind of watching everyone around me eating, you know, pizza and knocking back the wine, and I was there with my little bowl of salad and my, you know, bits of broccoli, going, "Oh my god, this is so so challenging." But like you say, you know, a, a rad, when something really radical happens in your body, you've got to just yield and go, okay, what does he, what do you need then? What, what do you need, mm. body? What can I give you? Mm. Mm. Um, yes. And so, how, did you, how did things shift for you? So quite quickly, really, um, within the first two months, so, um, let me see, uh, March, it was about March I, I started looking at the programs, March, April, May, June. So about, about June, I was starting to sleep again and I kept 
um, what I call a, he- a healing diary. And I've, I've got it here and I was reading it earlier going, my goodness. And I, I, doc- I don't know if this is useful to share, but I document the following. I document my sleep, my pain on awakening, my diet. So I would make myself write down what I was eating. My exercise, if any, you know, even if that was just walking to the end of the street or getting on a static bike. Um, my medication, what I'd taken that day, if any. And most importantly, my mood. So I made this healing diary and I would start to look at. So if I'd eaten, you know, if I'd really stuck to the program, my sleep would be better. If I'd come off the program a little bit and just gone, oh, I really fancy something sweet, then then that would affect. So I'm starting to really chart through my healing diary what was affecting what and how that was affecting my mood. And it's really interesting reading back through it, just go like when I was really faithful, then my pain levels were just, the inflammation was coming down. But that was only one approach. I felt I really needed to start feeling like myself. So the exercise thing, I would take myself to the, I'd be, be taken to the gym and hobble in and I would swim and hate it. Um, I'd go on the static bike and, you know, it was okay. I'd go into the sauna. It was nice. For me, it was just all about this thing I had going round and round in my head about you need oxygenated blood. And it must have been something you said, but it's like, I need oxygenated blood. Okay, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm just going to start to walk a little bit further. Um, However painful that is, I'm just going to walk a little bit further. And I live in a, a suburb of Cardiff, the capital of Wales. There's lots of green spaces. So I would just take myself out. And not force myself to walk, but just to walk through the pain, which felt counterintuitive at the time. But at the end of that walk, I would just feel that little bit more, I don't know, a bit more colour in my cheeks, a little bit lifted. And that was enough. And then I'd be exhausted, you know, and have to rest. So then my mother died in the middle of all of this. And that's a whole other story. But that was my, I think that for me was when I really started to heal properly in the sense of I had time. I was no longer running around. Um, I could take time off work. But the big, big turning point, as well as the medication and the diet, for me, the big one was when I had a new contract uh, in my job and I had to walk every day, 30 minutes there and 30 minutes back. And I would do it. And I just thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my trainers on and I'm going to walk no matter what. And if I get to the other end and I'm exhausted, then fine. And that for me was the turning point within one month of that consistent walking, not power walking, not, you know, my usual hundred miles an hour, got to be there, blah, blah, blah. Within one month, the pain had gone. All the inflammation had just come right down. So by November, so if I was showing symptoms in January, by November, my pain had gone completely. It's extraordinary. Um, yeah. Really extraordinary. And for me, it that was the key. The, the diet, absolutely, to clean up, absolutely, to take coffee and to take all the all the not so good stuff. Absolutely. But that for me was the real um key because my heart rate was up. I was moving my body in a different way. And it was incredible. And I saw my rheumatologist about, it must have been a week after I finished that contract. And, you know, he was there expecting me to hobble in. And he just went, what have you been doing? <laughs> you know, what if, this, is, this is incredible. And I said, well, I've, you know, had a radical change of diet and uh, yada, yada, and sort of had the conversation about it. But, you know, it, it, he couldn't get rid of, you know, wanted to get rid of me. He was like, you're fine. You know, get out of my office. So that was the first sort of, how many months is that? That's what, 11, yeah, about 11 months. And that spurred me on then. That really spurred me on to go, oh my God, this is this is what I need to do then is, yes, keep my diet as flexible as I can with the odd treat, but keep moving, keep walking, keep just keep that blood pumping around my veins, so to, yeah. so to speak. I love it. So a couple of, uh, couple of studies to support this. One is um, something I put up in a podcast a, a couple of months ago, and to refresh memories, uh, it was a study where 
folks with rheumatoid arthritis who were quite elderly, actually. I think that they were, uh, you know, decades older than us. We're about the same age, you and I. And they were put on a treadmill and they were only on the treadmill uh, twice a week. And all they had to do was walk, but they had to walk for half an hour, exactly what you're doing, half an hour. And at times throughout the half an hour, they had to increase their walking to a, a within 80 to an 80% level of their maximum heart rate, which, you know, if you go up a hill, for example, if you're on your walk and you start to go up a hill, you might reach 70 to 70 to 80%, right? So kind of mimicking what you were doing every single day. And they got statistically relevant reductions in CRP, inflammation, the joint range of motion. So just that can, and that was twice a week, right? You're going, you're walking five days a week. Yeah. That's number one. Okay. Number two, what we know from the blue zones from Dan Butner's work with National Geographic around the world where people are the most centurions, I mess up that word, but the live a hundred yeah. or more, those folks uh, have in common amongst, you know, mostly vegetarian diet, uh, strong social influence of family, um, a respect through their elderly years so that the elderly folks are also useful and contribute to the community. Amongst those things, one other factor was that they lived in a hilly terrain, not all, but a lot. And therefore, they were frequently walking up and down, walking, walking, walking. And so whilst you're in Cardiff, it may not have the same hills that I'm describing here, but there's this concept of activity and, you know, not relying on, you know, artificial transport to get from A to B, but to physically be moving a lot. And so uh, it's just really reaffirming what we know and what my intuition is and what we observe in both the, the walking study and blue zones and long life, that we're designed to be active, aren't we? And if we look at Dr. Michael Greger, when I interview him, you know, he's on a treadmill while he does his interviews for his podcast, right? And he just studies human body and health as a profession. And he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, sit down for his interviews. He will, he'll get on a treadmill. So I think that, um, you know, this is a really, really crucial point that we all need to to spend you know, a little bit more time emphasizing in our lives. And, uh, you know, thank you for discovering it yourself to the emphatic level that you did. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to go a step further than that, I, you know, I was a runner for nearly 20 years and I was really nervous about running. I was really, really nervous. And, you know, you and I had a conversation about it and I spoke to other other people, you know, I was part of a running club and all of that. And I was very nervous about putting my body back into that place of running. And it was last summer. So this would have been June 2020, where I just got that kick to go, let's just see what happens. Let's just see. Because I was thinking on oh, my joints, but I felt okay. But prior to this, and I think this is really, really key, um, I was doing, I don't know what it's called, I suppose strength, um, strength training, so like core fitness, just following, you know, he's a bit of a hero in the UK, Joe Wicks. He was a fitness sort of, um, not a guru, you wouldn't call himself that, but a fitness expert. And he just puts up um, free of charge on YouTube workouts for every level, so you can have a beginners and they're, they're, they're hit, hit routines. So building up muscle, building up strength, core strength. And I did that for about six weeks in preparation, thinking, let's just see what my body does. It hasn't run. It hasn't, it's walked, but it hasn't run. It hasn't done press-ups. It hasn't done a lot of the things that he was getting me to do. And I thought, I'll just see how it feels. And it was hard work. It was really, really hard going. But in that, after those six weeks, I thought, okay, I've got a basic core fitness now and a confidence, more importantly. And I went for my first run and I just, it was incredible. I mean, it was just incredible that I, I was almost crying, <laughs> going, mm -hmm. wow, how amazing my body is responding. And I didn't go health for leather. I, you know, I, I was very sensible. It was a jog. It wasn't a, you know, a sprint. And I've been running ever since. You know, taking care, not going crazy. You know, I'm I run 10Ks and 5Ks, um, building up to a half marathon again. 
but it's I think my body I think there's so much culture around you know running is bad for you and I think of course case by case if you've got other kind of stuff going on or you don't want to injure yourself and I do take care of myself in that step in that sense I do stretch I do I look at what I need to do to be able to live well um, with my running at my age but I, I think I was so discouraged initially when I was going to you know different clinics for things and and having foot scans and them going oh yeah I can tell you're an athlete you know you've got something not quite right about your feet and me just kind of inwardly eye rolling going you can't tell somebody that they can't run but I listened to them I just thought okay they're the experts maybe I shouldn't run and then of course you guided me back to born to run so it was great just to be able to go I'm I'm in charge here it's my body I know what I need to do. I love running because I love running and I and it's good for my mental health. It's good for me to get out and to then really enjoy that that feeling when you come back and you're warming down and you know ready for the day and your head oh is clear. God. Running is just exhilarating. Running is something that I, you know, I do miss. Um I can scamper around a little bit, you know, uh, now I um I had a knee replacement a year and a half ago and that that put a big stop into any kind of uh but you know well it both I couldn't run before that so like it hasn't exactly mm-hmm. ended my running prowess but um you know I'm cautious on a on a uh, prosthesis whatever it is in the knee um yeah. that I just don't want to um uh, dislodge any of the uh mm-hmm. what's going on there but a couple of things um there was a study, and I'll link to this in the show notes. So I've made a list of things we need to link to. I'm going to link to a book, uh, The Blue Zones. I'll link to that book. I'll link to the walking uh, study with rheumatoid arthritis. We'll link to Born to Run, one of my favorite books ever. We'll, and I will link to this study, which is a study that was done, split a group of people with osteoarthritis in their knees into two different groups. And one, they made them run or they allowed them to run. And those folks who were running for a long period too, they they studied them after six to twelve months or so of their you know frequent running. And those with osteoarthritis in the knees who were running did not experience any further degradation or worsening of their osteoarthritis in their knees than those who did not. And so osteoarthritis is not aggravated through running. And I think that that's a really reassuring study and something that we need to kind of, you know, take uh, uh, take account of when we think about, you know, putting ourselves through these sort of closer to the limits of our body. And I remember our conversation now, you were on one of our small group meetings. I was for, for a couple of months there, I arranged a group of just myself and five, five, uh, of five sort of guests or people in our small group. And we did a Zoom meeting. And uh, we we got together and we just spent 20 minutes, each person, right? And we went around and we said, where are you at? What are we going to do? And as a group, we we uh, we contributed and we solved problems and and created strategy. And I love that. And I'll actually start doing that again soon. That, that was that was a big success. Uh, everyone got a lot of, uh, I got so much good feedback about that. And it was real valuable. Um, and I remember now you said, look, I, I've, you know, you said, and the group were like, wow, wow, because you were saying, Hey, I've come so far, and I remember everyone being so sort of excited for you. And then you said, "I'm thinking about running again." And we just went through a few checklists, didn't we? And yeah. I remember saying to you, "You're good to go. Go for it. Go for yeah. it. And see how you go." And I remember that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, mm. it was. It, it, that was. I think that was the, the the boost I needed. Just that encouragement, because you know, previous to that, I'd be like, "Oh, be careful. Ooh, 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 mm. ooh." And someone just to say, go for it, see what happens. Your body will mm. tell you. And mm. I thought, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. I've, I've been listening to my body for the last, you know, 18 months. I'm just pretty, I've got a pretty good ear for it now. Well, that's and- right. Yeah, you really do. You, you, we, we have a heightened awareness of our body, don't we? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So uh, by contrast, sorry, when I tore my ACL, which led originally to my problems with my left knee, which is where the rheumatoid went and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because I had no body awareness and I ran out and played touch football with my buddies after not having done any form of cardio activity for years, no stretching, nothing. 
And out I went with no body awareness and tore my ACL, which set me up for a nightmare RA experience. So yeah, it's the opposite, isn't it? When we're in pain, we're doing, you know, dietary changes like, and we're really in tune. So Mm. thanks. So back over to you and uh, I'll I'll remain quiet for a little and let you resume. (laughs) Um, uh, Where should we go from? So um, What, what brought this all on? Like, you know, tell us that back sort of how did this start? Because you're a runner, mostly plant, mostly plant-based for a long time. I mean, what caused this? I think what caused it, it was a period in my life where, so my mother uh, had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia. And what happened, what happens is different systems in different countries, but um, the culture within the UK, I suppose, is that you try and keep that person at home for as long as possible because their sense of orientation, their sense of familiarity is is diminishing. So you want to keep them at home. And with that comes um, a lot of care. She had carers coming in, but myself and my older brother were the ones going in the most, and me, to be honest, going in the most. My brother had a full-time job. I'm a freelancer. So I was going in a lot. And with that comes an enormous amount of stress whilst I'm still trying to hold down various contracts and a lot of my work is away. So it was just this buildup. And at the time, when I look back at it, it's in, it was insane the le- what I was having to do, you know, getting up really early, driving to work, running a full day's rehearsal. I work in theatre, driving back, caring for my mum, coming back home, cooking a meal for everyone, and then, you know, re- on repeat. So that level of stress and that level of worry over eight years and I think it was very significant that the day she was then she had to be moved into a nurse a nursing home so a nursing home in the UK means end of life so she was you know sort of coming to the end of her life and I think my my body my mind and my body I can remember going to bed that night and the day she was admitted going I've lost not I've won I've got her there it was like I have lost I have failed She's in a nursing mm. home. And, you know, just that level of no encouragement to myself, just real, like, you failed. Mm. Mm. And it was very painful. And about t- it was, and the timeline's so interesting. That it was 10 days later, I then woke up with this searing pain in my left shoulder. And I think mm. that, that, that level of stress is just not sustainable. And... Mm. There I was thinking I would get my life back, whatever that means. And here I was presented with this. So for me, the connection, the, the, the massive trigger initially, I thought was something to do with my hormones. I remember asking the rheumatologist, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age. Could this be connected to to menopause? And he just dismissed it completely. So I kind of just didn't delve into any more of that. But for me, once I'd worked out that timeline, I went, well, small wonder I think started mm. to happen in my body because that level of stress, it was like my body had just gone, enough, that's enough, that's enough. You've really got to start taking care of yourself. When we're also going through those, those, I mean, that transitional period of moving her into permanent care, that itself also tends to be a period where we're not eating as mindfully with carefully prepared meals and so on. That time is probably just grab something on the go and you may have been holding on to a thread of pre-autoimmunity and that thread may have just been broken by just even less mindful eating and, and whole foods and then all of the additional stress on top of it. Yeah. yeah. We won't dwell on that too much because it's a little emotionally painful for you and so forth, and you did lose your mum and so on. But I think it, it it just goes to show about you know how much you know these events, these traumatic experiences and sad experiences can impact us in life. I, I do want to also pick up the fact that you, and this is completely out of flow of our conversation, but we failed to mention that you have reduced your sulfasalazine and your doctor is happy not your rheumatologist has said they don't need to see you for a long period of time Uh, can you yeah from a medical pharmaceutical viewpoint can you also update us too compared to your initial 
maximum dose of methotrexate and sulfur salazine? Yeah, sure. So um, the methotrexate, I'm now that's now gone down to 20 milligrams per week. And for reasons which we can go into later, I've had to stop taking methotrexate for a couple of weeks, which we can come back to. The sulfur salazine, for me, it was just getting to the point where I was just starting to, again, going back to listening to the body. And the last time I spoke to the rheumatologist, he said, look, we could look at halving this. So I said, okay. So that was halved. And I really started to think about it. And just, again, it's wanting to know my body as it is. Um, the medication, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating coming off medication for coming off medication's sake. But there was something in me that was going, I'm not sure if I need this anymore. And that's quite a radical thing to say. And again, I wouldn't say to anybody in what was my position to go, yeah, just come off the meds. It's easy. There was just something in, in me that was going, I'm, I'm feeling so well. I'm going to see what happens. This will be an experiment for a yeah. month. And I thought I'll review it after a month. So I was halving it and then quartering it very slowly. And then so I would do that. I did that incrementally over six months. And have felt fine. I've still kept the methotrexate up, by the way. Mm. And so when I last spoke to the rheumatologist, he said, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, if you need it, you can go back onto it. It's like, right, okay. So mm. I've been off sulfasalazine for probably about 10 months now. And that feels great. You know, that feels yeah. good. Um, but I also at the same time said, okay, if you're going to do that, then you have to really be vigilant about what you're eating and really vigilant and remember that you have still you've still got this you know it's not completely mm. gone away you're still on methotrexate so don't think well well hey i'm out of the woods so in a way that was the deal i made with myself going okay if you're going to take responsibility for lowering your meds with your rheumatologist you've really got to be mindful about what you're eating and how you're living and that was the payoff for me so that's that's that story in terms of the methotrexate you know, I think the medication is very good and it's worked really well for me. I have a long-term goal of coming off it completely, but at the moment, that's not an option. Um, rheumatologist has been very clear about that, just saying, let's take this. He said, I think in the UK, it might be different elsewhere, but he said, you need to be um, not having had a flare for two years, which is the position I'm in. I haven't had a flare for two years. And he said, you know, I'm not going to see you now for another year. We'll talk about it then. So I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. You know, yeah. I, um, whether or not my opinion matters is irrelevant, but just I just like to say that I think your rheumatologist has said a lot of good things. Now, sometimes we hear some crazy stuff like diet doesn't matter. Um, you will definitely be on medications for life. Those two statements are, the first of all, the first statement, diet doesn't matter, which we hear a lot, right, is just downright ignorance and just almost malpractice when someone's in a position of treating people with rheumatoid arthritis, which is, a, which is driven by a gut disorder. The studies that have come out in the last few months, which, several of which I'll be sharing shortly, um, are just so emphatically uh, describing what I've been talking about for the last 12 years. And then the second part of that is, nothing's for life really except sort of taxes right and yeah. saying that you'll be on medications for life when some of the medications are so quickly removed from a patient's regime when they have suffer from massive side effects i mean even if the patient never changed their diet but they couldn't tolerate the meds so they had to go med free is an example where someone is not on medications for the rest of their life and whilst most people are in the past more so even um, it just puts in the mind of the patient that they are therefore stuck with this medication mindset. And whilst it is, again, most common, it doesn't empower the patient. That's what it doesn't do. It doesn't empower. A better statement would be we have medications which are developing every year and becoming more and more sophisticated and effective at reducing inflammation. And they are there to the extent that you need them if your lifestyle interventions uh, only get you so far. 
And your lifestyle interventions should be A, B, C, D, here, take this book that Clint's eventually going to publish that's on my shelf. And you can go and read this. And, and then we have here a, uh, a, a, a whole cabinet full of options for you, of which statistically you will probably need one or more to keep you symptom-free. However, I have seen patients and I have read about and now understand that not everyone requires the medications to remain symptom-free. Now, that should be the complete, the yes. complete picture. And I don't yeah. want anyone to grab a little clip out of there and take it out of context. That the full explanation there is, you know, because it's a subtlety, isn't it? And when we hear statements from authority, they sink deep into our subconscious and they demotivate us to be able to, to we want to be empowered. We need the power and feel the power and the confidence yeah. because it's one hellish disease. We want to be as positive as what, realistically we are uh, uh, we we can be without being misled or have the wrong expectations yeah yeah couldn't agree more absolutely great great work carrie you have done sensational let's talk about covid before we wrap this up you first of all did you react to the vaccinations no not at all um so i was given the pfizer vaccine um Mm -hmm. the only reaction i had was a swollen arm yep uh, which went down, and then the second shot I had, it was just a feeling of very being feeling very tired when that on the same evening I had it, and slept that off. The sore arm went down mm-hmm. and no side effects at all, so that was good. Same, I had the exact the, the same drug, the same experience. No, nothing other than a sore arm, a little bit of tiredness. Uh, you got COVID. When did you get it? Presumably so, after the, yeah. Yeah. So this, I've been, you know, really careful. In the UK, we had um, a system called shielding. So people that were quote unquote clinically vulnerable or mm. on immune suppressants were encouraged by the Welsh government to shield, meaning stay at home. Not so much you can leave the house, but don't go into, this was before the vaccine had come in, don't go into areas where there are other people. So I got into this culture of I am extremely vulnerable to this disease. To this virus and then lockdown was lifted shielding was lifted and then shielding was brought back in again as numbers soared in the uk so i've been really careful when once i was back out in the world i was masked up i was you know um sanitizing my hands doing all the stuff that you know we do to keep safe and then <laughs> and then i had gone out um to a gig here a big gig but I was extremely careful I had a mask I'm sanitizing my hands I kept well away from other people I enjoyed the gig and I came home and felt fine the weekend the usual sort of stuff and then I was due to go away to work and I didn't feel very well and so I'll just do a little test we we have tests you can just lateral flow test yeah so I did a lateral flow and it was positive I thought, oh, okay, well, this could be a false negative. I'm, I'll just, I'll take it a step further and have a PCR test, which is a, you know, more in-depth test. Had that, came back positive. And I just sat with it for about an hour going, okay, this is going to be interesting. I have COVID and my immune system's compromised. Okay, I don't, I hadn't had a cold, nothing in the two years I've been on methotrexate. So it was a really like, where's this going to, what's going to happen, you know? And I didn't become very, very ill. I became like as if I, the way I've described it, it's like a very heavy cold mixed with a very bad hangover and no sense of taste, no sense, uh, no taste, no smell, and just very heavy, just feeling very, very heavy. So I rested for about the first five days, did very little, um, which was awful for me. That was just that was worse than mm. actually symptoms, just having to rest and just, you know, watch mm. telly and read and whatever. And then after about seven or eight days, started to feel a little bit better. But it took me about two weeks to recover completely. And today I can say two days ago, three days ago, I was not feeling great. And now I'm completely back back to normal. So um, this is really recent. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, what are we, Thursday? So this was two days ago. I was starting to feel like, oh my God, is this ever going to go away? 
And then mm-hmm. quite literally overnight, I woke up and went, oh, I don't, I feel like myself again. Started to eat things, smell things, taste things. So it mm-hmm. kind of went went in with a bang and went out with a bang. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've recovered very well. But interestingly, within this, I rang um, rheumatology department here and said, look, I'm seeking some advice. What I've got COVID, what should I do? Um, and eventually somebody got back to me and said, okay, talk us through, you know, how are you feeling? We're going to advise you as you're, you know, you're okay. You're not kind of um, short, no shortness of breath. No, I said, I'm just feeling very, very like I've got a heavy cold. So they advised me to come off methotrexate for a two week period just to give my immune mm. system a chance to fight, um, fight it off. And that's what's happened. So I'm now, yeah, week two of being off methotrexate and I feel fine. No flares so far. Mm. It has a long lag. So, you know, uh, it, if you were not to resume it, it might take a few months before you notice if any symptoms return. So have a drink of water. And then what we'll do is I, I do want to ask you about your Buddhism before mm-hmm. we close out. Let's give that some attention and some um, airtime because it has played a role for you. So let's talk about that. Okay, so the simplest way I can describe it really. So I've been a Buddhist for about 26, 27 years. And how I use my Buddhist practice is to, um, if you like, I suppose the way I would describe it to somebody is um, it's a practice of not meditation. It's a practice of chanting. And I don't know if you've seen the Tina Turner film, but it's it's Tina Turner, um, What's Love Got to Do With It? You'll see her chanting. And what, what the practice does is it allows us, I suppose, to bring forth all our courage, our compassion, our wisdom, and our life force. So we're not chanting to something external. We're chanting to bring out something that's inherently in us, which... Um, where faith comes in, I suppose, is we are revealing our our happiest, strongest, most authentic self, which sounds quite out there, I imagine, to somebody listening to this, but it's a, a practice of self-reflection and it's a practice of bringing forth happiness from within ourselves. So we're not looking to anything external. It's really about bringing forth our own wisdom rather than, like I said, praying to an external mm. uh, force or being so with the process of of chanting for me comes a lot of realizations and one of the properties of you know uh, of this practice is bringing forth this innate wisdom and courage i guess and for me the the wisdom was to go okay i've got i've looked at diet i've looked at my lifestyle i've looked at my stress levels i've looked at uh, my exercise. I've looked at the whole shebang, but what, what, where, what's my, what's my inner chat? What am I? How am I treating myself? How am I, tack, how am I tackling? You know, the, the stuff. What's the stuff I need to change to become well again? So all those things are are really, you know, we've talked about, you know, incredibly important. But what's really underneath all of this that could have triggered this? Mm. And I'm not saying that in a, a mystical way. You know, I think when we talk about Buddhism, we hear this word karma and it's something I've bad I've done in a past life. It's not that at all. It's about very much the present and about how we're treating ourselves. And for me, I think, you know, I'm I a pretty high achiever. I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but a realist at the same time. And I just started to notice how I was, how I had been really um, treating myself. So when you're living life at 90 miles an hour, you don't really stop to go, what is the the inner voice? And for me, the inner voice was the critic. That's not good enough. You haven't done that properly. Um, Mm. uh, You failed at that. You're not achieving as much as you should be. You're there. I mean, it was in, in this and it was only because I'd stopped because of this illness, I'm starting to recognize it and go, oh my God, I wouldn't speak to anyone the way I speak to myself. So the process of chanting for me was transforming that very, um, it'd been with me since childhood really of, of, of 
this almost and was at war with myself rather than gently encouraging myself and gently supporting myself it was just this you know awful awful so I think I don't know if that is makes sense but part of the healing was so connected to changing that inner critic Mm. and I suppose starting to really warmly encourage myself so when I could take two steps further out of the house you know well done bravo you've done it this is incredible well done Rather than, yeah, but you didn't walk to the end of the road like you could have, the old voice, you know. So the healing within that was, I think, so connected to that sense of becoming my own best friend and becoming, um, because it's quite a lonely condition, rheumatoid arthritis. I I find it quite lonely. I didn't know anybody with it. And so, you know, my support systems are fantastic here, but actually how was I really treating myself? And I think just transforming that inner critic was so, so key um, for my peace of mind, for moving forward, for, for because it's a rocky road, right? It's, it's not a, a straight line healing at all. And it's something, and my practice of Buddhism allows me to return back to that place of compassion and wisdom and courage and life force, you know, it brings forth a great sense of life force, you know, which is vavavoom and enjoyment and the ability to feel joy. And that's why I practice it. You know, it's just this incredible tool I have to bring forth that joy, even when things are really, really tough. That's there at my disposal. And I think that's, that's what's kept me going. Mm. Sure. It's, yeah, it's, fascinating and uh and beautiful and um insightful you know sort of wrapping this up in a nice kind of conclusion conclusion kind of few statements here if a lot of people in your position would have went into a deep downward spiral you here you are you've moved your mum into into her sort of end of life care you've spent so much energy to avoid that and to care for her at home and you've watched her mental deterioration and it's a sad time it's a sort of one of those sort of milestones in life that that all of us have to cross one day uh, losing parents and you have gone through that then you've been hit with one of the worst diseases that you can possibly get one of the doctors i saw said of all the diseases i would not want to get rheumatoid arthritis is at the top of my list right he said that to me young guy wasn't much older than me at 31 when i was diagnosed and uh and you've had all this come at the same time within 10 days of each other you know and then that's come on you were as you said being carried around the, the joint pain you described was was systemic and then here you are now you know sharing a transformational story and you're glowing and you're running and you're decreasing medications you you know you've reconnected with yourself with your spiritual practice and it is now more meaningful for for you and has more impact positively on you than it used to over the last few decades of practicing it yes and now you're inspiring other people with what you've achieved and you're on a trajectory of continual improvement with two years being asymptomatic Mm. your Mm. doctor doesn't need to see you for another year Mm. you know Mm. yeah life's good yeah i never thought i would be in this position in those darkest of days and there were many there were many dark days are and you know specifically just not being able to have hope and I think, in a, you know, anyone that's listening to this or is going through it or finds this somewhere along the line in, in their journey, there is hope. There's a lot of hard work, but there is hope. And it's I when I look back at myself and just looking back at my healing diary today, just going, oh, my God, that was just I never thought I would be able to have got through this. I thought that was it. I was just going to be, you know, on my stick barely walking for the rest of my life and you know my god it takes effort it takes effort but it is so worth it and I think I I hear what you're saying about 
you know, the doctor that you saw saying of all the diseases, I wouldn't want to get rheumatoid arthritis. I agree with him. But at the same time, it's been a gift because it's allowed me to reassess every area of my life. And it's in a, in a, it's a constant reminder not to spiral into that stressful lifestyle again. So it's awful. The diagnosis was devastating, but it's for me at the time, I think I remember thinking, okay, you've got to make this the best thing that's ever happened to you because otherwise you will not, you will not, you won't get through it. You will just, you just won't get out of bed. You know, you will just, and I didn't believe that at the time, but I was, that was, I was trying to tell myself going, if I can get to the point in my heart that, that I'm going to make this the best thing that ever happened to me, then that's my choice. That's the only choice I have. And, that was and, even it, and even if we don't ever quite get there, and I don't think I will ever get there. I don't mm-hmm. think I'll ever, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't know how many sort of wonderful stories like yours that I feel that I may have partially contributed to will ever add up to the amount of life-ending despair and agony and and darkness that I've been through. Yeah. Um, and the relationship impact that it has with my wife. So we just can't we just can't go and eat like pigs at the local restaurant and bring the kids and let them wear. You know, it's always it's it's uh, it's omnipresent or it's like yes. it's something that is just part of how we live. But as I say that, I also hear an inner voice saying, "Yes, it is. It is. It is worth it. It is worth it." Because what would I be doing with my life if it wasn't? Like, what would I? We're just telling jokes at pubs and doing the odd performance internationally where I feel, oh, that's cool. I did an international job. I come home and then I think, okay, where's my next gig as a stand-up? Which I, yeah. Or would I be working in, you know, fibre optics and, and which is my education and, mm. and getting a good wage, but like die without really any doing anything other than contributing to high-tech components that go into undersea networks. And like, yeah, that's cool. And so, you know, we don't know, do we? Uh, really, all we've got is to concentrate on what we, our set of cards, and where do we go from here? And how do we interpret it the most positive? Even if it's not, hey, rheumatoid has been the greatest gift, even if we never get that far, at least we can say, look at the positives of what it has given me. Look at yeah. the connections we've made, the community that we've yeah. made. Absolutely. You know, look at the insights into health that may have saved one of our family members' life by them seeing the way we have to eat and they eat like that and they don't die of heart disease or they don't get cancer. And we'll never know. We won't know because it's an there's only there's no there's no control and variable. There's just the one person and we don't know what they've avoided or decisions they've made Mm. as a result of what we've done. So it's a fascinating sort of mind sort of experiment as to, you know, how good has it been, how good or not, but we can only just say there's definitely positives in it, even if we have to dig for them. Yeah. In, in the case yeah. of you and I, when we're talking about this, we can find them quickly. And some people who are in the darkness at the moment listening to this thing, and I can't think anything positive about this, mm. you have to think harder and more subtly. Yeah. You know, think more subtly about well, what if I had to find a few good things about what's come out of this? Mm-hmm. Could there be at least? Could it be that I've become more in, in you know inquisitive about lifestyle choices? Is it that I've discovered podcasting? <laughs> you know, is it yeah. that now? Is it that now you can I, I can understand an Australian accent a little bit better, or whatever it might be, right? <laughs> whatever it might be, as small as is, some little tiny good things yeah. are coming from it. If we if we get it. So Carrie, you and I could talk all day, I think. So yes, let's, absolutely. let's roll it. Let, let, let's wrap it up there. You know, I, I, I gave my little overview earlier of how great I think, you know, your outcome has been. I'm very grateful for you to share this and keep on the discipline path and uh, all is well. And thank you very much. Thank you, Clint. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And you know, it has to be said, without you, Clint, I don't think I would be, I, I wouldn't be in this the, the state I'm in. I think, you know, one of my big prayers at the time was to find the person who had the best knowledge of my condition and you are him. 
And to you, I am in a, I have a huge debt of gratitude. And I think, you know, you have turned, you've made it your mission in life to help. I don't know how many people with RA. And that is extraordinary. That it is. And I think about all the people that you're going to help in the future. Um, And the Patterson program will be the go to treatment. As you know, alongside others, and I, 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 I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Mm, thanks, Carrie. That's beautiful. Thank you for taking it all and and running with it, literally, huh? Yes. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.